Well, good morning. Today we begin a new series that's going to walk us all the way to Easter, and we're calling that series of people becoming. This is the time of year that in the liturgical calendar uh, we call Lent, and this time is intended, it was intended to be a time where we press in close to the Lord and a time of intimacy where we have a heart of gratitude and thankfulness for Jesus enduring the cross and dying so that we might have life, but it's also a place where we can... Um, do that through certain practices like prayer and fasting. It's a place where we press into the heart of God. At least that's what its intention was. How many of you have ever looked at kids and you kind of told them, like you're looking at them and you said, hey, do you understand what I'm talking about? And they go, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. But they clearly don't get what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking Where I'm at? Like my, my kids and I and my wife, we have this practice. It is, um, it is pizza and movie night. Okay, and pizza movie night is pretty sacred. It's every week, and we have a time where we come together and we order pizza and we watch a movie. But its its intention is togetherness, like it's to be together. Well, the problem is there are moments, not every week, but there are times where we come to pizza movie night, and because we ordered pizza from a place that someone in the room didn't want. Or we let someone choose a movie again, and they got to choose the movie last week. Or someone sat where someone else wanted to sit. Someone else grabbed the remote. We decided to go with one, one of the people's rooms in the, in, the, in the room who had a dessert option, but no one else wanted that dessert. Do you know what I'm saying? We have a veritable cage match ensues, all in the name of let's have time together. Which, of course, mom and dad speak up and at that point go, okay, bedtime. You know, like, we'll have a movie, you go to bed. Here's the thing. I just genuinely believe that what was intended by God was for Christ to come to reconcile the people that he created in his image to himself, that we might become the people of God. In fact, Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 3, he said that we are becoming a temple together. For his spirit. That it's not just individual, but together. He said it in Ephesians 2.22. He said that we, we in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And if I'm honest, I just think that oftentimes what God intended at his heart, sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes we miss it. And we put value in the things around versus what he intended. Maybe we put more value in the practice then we do his presence. And today, uh, we're going to look at a passage where that very much gets exposed, where the people don't understand what God intended. And I've titled the message, Defilement Comes From Within. We're going to be looking over the course of this series, starting next week and into Easter, at the last week of Jesus' life. So we'll start in Mark 11 next week and we'll walk through it. And Collectively, if you're going uh, through the sermon study in your life group along with us, you're going to be looking at a parallel study in Exodus from th chapters 13 through 17. We're going to look at what happened in the people of God at the time of Moses. We're going to look at what happened to the people of God at the time of Jesus in his last week on the, on the planet. And we're going to look at how we today, the people of God, respond to these events. Here's what I want to encourage you. What we're going to see today as we kick the entire thing off in Life Group and here in Mark 7 is you see a massive power struggle because the people just did not get it. Oswald Chambers said it like this, many of us are interested only in our own goals. 
And Jesus cannot help himself to our lives when that is the case. Let me say, many, like, we're a people becoming, but he says, many of us are only interested in our own goals. Much like, I'm only interested in the pizza that I want to eat. I'm only interested in the movie that I want to watch. But maybe that's just kids. Maybe that's not his kids. Or maybe it's not you, it's just your friends. Right? There it is. We don't become a we while I'm still fighting for me. We don't become the people that he intended, that he died for, that he gave his life for, that he went to cross for, his church. We don't become that people when we're still fighting for our own individual rights or fighting to be right. Which is the case in Mark 7 as we turn there now and look at the first five verses of how the Pharisees have left Jerusalem, come to Galilee just to challenge Jesus, this massive problem for them. So, uh, before we do, though, let me just give you a little context. We're turning to this passage today, and I need to let you know that at the, at the end of Mark 6, you have the pinnacle of Jesus' Galilean ministry. If you remember in Mark 6, you had him uh, disperse the twelve and come back to him, and they are now able to perform miraculous things in his name. They've gone into the villages two by two. It's not just Jesus, it's his disciples. And then he, wa- he feeds some 20,000 people on menial resources, at the end of which the people are ready to champion him into Jerusalem to overthrow Rome. They're like, this is our coming Messiah, this is our king, we're going to reign with him, let's, let's take him in and let's overthrow Rome, let's bring the kingdom now. But they only had a mindset for an earthly kingdom, and so he wouldn't allow it. Jesus left that time, goes up on top of a mountain by himself, and the things that he prayed are recorded in John 17. He said, God, I pray that they would be one like you and I are one. All my disciples will become one in unity. And he comes off the mountain and he walks on water, the end of which the people again are ready to make him king. See, there's this, there's this massive shift in Jesus' ministry at the end of Mark 6 and the beginning of Mark 7. That shift is, this is the start of the last year of his life on the planet. So next we'll begin to look at the last week on the planet and you'll see people lay palm fronds and jackets at his feet because they are worshiping their king. But this is the turn in his last year and you see his, his focus move from the masses to his twelve. You see him focus not on, the, twel- on the, the masses of people but on the twelve that he's leaving the entire New Testament church in its birth too. John 6 records this time as a time where Jesus starts teaching very exclusively and really difficult truths. In fact, he said, you can't be mine unless you eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. He turns and, he said, and, and people leave him in droves. But he turns to find his 12 standing there. And he says, are you going to leave too? And the famous response of Peter was, to where can we go? Your words have life. In that moment, that response shows a little bit of how much Peter had pressed in, started to recognize the intent in the heart of God. So we're going to look at Mark 7 as this ministry is now shifting to these last 12. And he gets challenged immediately by the Pharisees that have come from Jerusalem to Galilee. He's a huge problem for them. Here it is. Verse 1. Then the Pharisees, some of the scribes have come together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defi- that is defiled, that is With unwashed hands they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many things to which they receive and hold, like the washing of cups. 
pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Here's your first point today. The defilement of the the religious leaders gets exposed to this statement. They have chosen tradition over truth. The religious leaders have chosen tradition over truth. Their ploy, the ploy of the Pharisees, is not that they would uh, argue about the truth here. It is an emphasizing of their teaching so they can distract from the truth. It's just a deflection. John 14, 6 said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are the words of Jesus. He said, I'm the truth. And so they're, they're elevating, they have elevated their personal traditions so much so and so highly that it's overshadowing the very word of God, Jesus himself. This was a power struggle. It's about a shift in power. They were losing. This is not about cleanliness or hygiene. This is not even about the practice itself. It's about what's happening behind the practice. Here it is. I'll tell you what the practice looked like. They would, uh, the most devout of priests, before every meal and often before each course, would wash their hands ceremonially um, in two ways. They would raise their fingers to the sky and someone would pour a jar of water over their hands, letting the water run off at the wrist. And then, immediately following that, they'd turn their hands down and they would let the water run over the back of the hand again, coming off at the fingertips. And they expected that every devout Jew would do the same. Only problem is, this was only required of priests. In Leviticus 22, verse 6 and 7, you see this practice was required for the priest, not the people. It was required for the priest as a, kind of like a sign as we do when we pray for our food and we give thanks to the Lord. This is a sign that they have are in gratitude that the God of the universe has provided the one they serve, who, stands, who they stand as an intercessor between him and man. So as a sign to the people, they would wash their hands ceremonially. And they, and they like, proposed on the people the fact that like, when you go to the marketplace, you're probably more likely to need to ceremonially wash because you have then come into contact with a number of things. You may have come into contact with a Gentile who's a dog, and so you don't want their hatred of God passed to you. They're, that will defile you. You don't want to come into contact with or touch a copper bowl that maybe a Samaritan has touched because they're worse than Gentiles. So that you don't want that hatred of God passed to you, that defilement. You don't want to come into contact with a Jewish brother who is unclean at this moment. And the hatred of God because of their lack of cleanliness be passed to you. So when you eat, ceremonially wash your hands so that no defilement, no vessel you eat from, nothing can put on you from that person the hatred of God. You won't come into contact with that. Kind of like we passed the coronavirus. They're going, hatred of God passed this way. Okay? So they're going, wash your hands. But it had nothing to do with cleanliness. You didn't hear anything about soap. You didn't hear anything about hygiene. This is just a ceremonial practice. Uh, Peter went on to talk about this in chapter 3 of his first book in the New Testament. He said, if you're expecting for baptism to wash you clean of your sins, you've come from the wrong reason. What can remove dirt does not wash the heart clean. So he's trying to expose the practice itself. The only concern the priests had here was this, ceremony. That's it. If Jesus was allowing the people to dismiss ceremony at this point in, their, in his ministry, then 
it would allow them to dismiss the one thing the Pharisees had control over. Let me say that again. If Jesus is allowing them to dismiss ceremony, then it removed the one thing they had control over and they lorded over the people. These were the smartest people in the room, the most educated, the most experienced, and had the most time with the law. And they were the ones who were the masters of the law, so they lorded that over the people. And if Jesus is now allowing the people to dismiss their practices, they now have no vehicle for status or control. They can't control the people once that's removed. That's a problem for them because now their power is taken. Hello? Let's go a little bit further into what they're implying here. What did they say of Jesus? They said there's no way that you could perform these miracles. You can't cast out demons if it wasn't by the power of Beelzebub. If it wasn't of Satan, you couldn't do this. Okay? All right? So let's go a little bit further. What were they saying of his disciples who do not care any longer about being defiled before God and assuming his hatred because they're not ceremonially washing? He's going, not only do you respond to Satan because we're godly, you're not, and you're so opposed to us, your own disciples are that way. In fact, the interpretation that they had rabbinically was that at night there was a demon that would rest upon the back of the hand for all Jews. When they'd go to sleep at night, this this demon named Shibda would lay on the back of the hand. And they taught this so that if they did not ceremonially wash everyone in in the country of Israel, everyone amongst the people, If they didn't ceremonially wash, then they had made themselves susceptible to the ingesting of a demon. And so now, when you have people publicly watching Jesus' disciples, not ceremonially washing, to make sure that they don't receive uh, defilement from the marketplace or the people, listen, or that they don't wash their hands, that they don't receive a demon, it's only infusing their argument that he, in fact, is of the enemy. You hear that? Hello? So, they're trying to pose a lot on him right now. And here's the point. Paul wrote about these types of people in 2 Timothy 3. He said, they have a form of godliness, an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Stay away from these people. He's talking to Timothy, he's talking to his understudy about people who in his midst were studied, had come out of Judaism... Many very educated people like this group. And he says, stay away from them. They have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Stay away from them. Stephen spoke to the very Sanhedrin before he died and became the first martyr in the church. As he stood before them, he said two things. He quoted a statement that Solomon, the wisest among them to have ever lived, said. This phrase was this. He says, you stiff-necked people. If you read Proverbs 29.1, you'll see the stiff-necked are destroyed. He said, you stiff-necked people to the Sanhedrin. This is the highest of high in Pharisees. This is your supreme court, if you will, in Judaism. These are the best of the best of the best. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. Just like your, your ancestors, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So... They have accepted tradition and let it overshadow the very word of God. And that is how they are using as a vehicle to control the people. Jesus steps on the scene and says it has nothing to do with that. Let's read it. Mark 7, verse 6 through 9. And he answered them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in vain they worship me. 
teaching as doctrines the commands of men, for laying aside the commandments of God, you hold to the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things as you do. Verse 9, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. By Jesus' day, the tradition of the elders had been so elevated that it was literally supplanting, not just overshadowing God's word. Here's the next point. Religious leaders taught lies over truth. I want to repeat that one. The religious leaders of his day taught lies over truth. They were teaching as doctrine these extra-biblical regulations and forcing them upon the people. When I say extra-biblical, here's what I mean. So I told you in Luke 22, you have the practice of the priests. They had taken that and they had interpreted it for all the people. This is a part of the Jewish tradition called the Talmud. The Talmud was the interpretations that were rabbinical that the the rabbis, those who were most educated, could give the people so they would know how to practice and not break the law. It was well intended. Please let me be clear. Most things are. It was well intended that they would build a wall around the law so the people would never break it, thus offend God, thus walk themselves straight out of his favor. So they built the Talmud out of their own interpretation so the people would know how to practice so they could never come close to affecting the law. But here's the problem. The law given through Moses came straight down from God, thus the word of God, thus the heart of God and intent of God. And in trying to protect them from from breaking the law, they only built a wall that kept the people out. Because they taught and became so focused and the people became so dependent on the teachings of the rabbi that they focused around this wall and it kept them at bay from the presence of God. Hello? More focused on the practices themselves in the Talmud than they were the truth. And so, you teach as doctrine the commands of men, verses 7 and 8. You take your interpretation as if it were the commandment of God himself. You have defined and rejected the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. I'm going to teach you a word. You probably know it, but if you don't, here's a new word. Heresy. Heresy defined is this. It's an opinion, an interpretation, a doctrine, a practice that sounds like the truth but lives contrary to the truth. Focus on that word lives contrary to the truth. As much as Moses was used by God as an instrument to free the people from bondage in Egypt, Jesus came to free the people, generations later, as an instrument to free Israel and those in the New Covenant, Gentile alike, from religious and dogmatic bondage. Hello? I, I said things are well intended, right? I want to ask a people who have grown up in a fundamentally over-church culture, but maybe under-gospel culture. I'm not going to ask you, but how many of you have a friend who knows all the religious things to say, but does not live after the heart of God? How many of you have even witnessed people in a really religious culture practice and say and know, maybe from their own intake, knowledge about things They repeat them, they do them, they say them ritualistically and maybe in an empty fashion. Never thus pricking the heart. They get into the routine, they continue to do that and never, listen, never allow their heart to be affected. Here's, this is what 
happened in this practice. Judaism had become so openly and efficient at externalism that they could practice Judaism till the day they died very effectively and never, ever, ever ask someone to check the condition of their heart. What did Jesus come to change? Judaism had become so religious and so effective at that religiosity that little to no regard to be given for the heart when someone practiced externally. Let me read on in Mark 7. Here's Jesus in verse 14. He calls the people to himself and he says to them, Hear me. Listen. I need you to listen. Everyone and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside that's going to defile him. This is a big statement for people that are are learning just what I told you. Like what we just taught. There's nothing that enters a man that's going to defile him. But that which comes out of him. Those things defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? You're the guys I'm leaving this whole thing to. My intention in ministry is to shift my attention to you right now. And he goes, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it, not, it does not enter the heart. What was Jesus' focus? Say it together. The Jesus' focus was the heart. Because it does not enter the heart but his stomach and is eliminated. Thus purifying all foods. This is a big statement considering people who live by a Levitical diet. They live on dietary restrictions because they're afraid certain foods are not accepted by God and thus will defile them. He goes, nothing that will enter the body is going to defile a man because it can't enter the heart. It enters the stomach and will then leave. And he said, what comes out of man defiles him? Verse 21, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. I'm going to add one, complaint. Fighting over which pizza we get. Or who gets to watch a movie? He says, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. Next point. Jesus taught spiritual cleansing over ceremonial cleansing. Jesus came teaching a true religion, not a heart of externalism. Not one that's built in exterior practices. Not empty, lifeless, hypocritical worship directed at God, but practiced in the wrong way. Missing the point entirely. Because it practiced a faith in their religious rituals, their legalistic practices. Not in the presence of God. Not a wholehearted submission receiving the love of God and enlisting into service with God. Jesus taught, I want you to write this statement down to you. Romans 12.1, Jesus taught transformation over confirmation. He said, not that you'd be conformed by the way of this world, but you'd be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where salvation comes from. That's where that comes from. It's not that you conform to the ways of the world, but you'd be transformed from the inside out. Jesus taught and spent his ministry talking about heart change, 
over behavior modification. So let me encourage you. Conforming, that's behavior modification. When you see people around you and you like the way they dress, you decide to emulate that dress, that's behavior modification. He came for transformation, not, not that. That's conformation. And then he didn't also come for information. How many of you know someone who knows a lot about the Bible? Knows a lot about religious practices? And not, not you, but has a heart that looks like a pterodactyl. He says his first accomplishment is this, that we have to listen. We have to come to him with teachable ears. My question to you is, are you teachable? Because those who have a lot of experience in this, many years at this, and a lot of information attained over this, may just be academic disciples, but not true heart disciples of Jesus. So he says, you have to be teachable. You have to listen well. Because your years of experience, your years of practicing empty ritual, and your years of compounding information that has never pricked your heart has done nothing for you. But like the Pharisees, like those religious leaders who came to him, imposing on the people a vehicle of control so they could control them and stay in power, ultimately building altars themselves, forcing the people to worship them. Gave them an outlet. See, their knowledge and their lack of heart change, their lack of sensitivity to what God desired, their, their placing their faith in their rituals gave them a, an ability to simply die in their religion and all the while control the people with it. So, so uh, Jesus comes and says, listen, I need you to be uh, teachable. And second, I need you to understand. I need you to understand what I'm asking of you. I need you to understand with a cost that can be evaluated. In Luke 14, he said, you cannot be my disciple unless, unless you're willing to count the cost of what discipleship means. He said, I don't want you to be like someone who set out to build a building but didn't have the budget to finish it. And then when he can't, he quits, walks away, and there's just an empty building there for everyone to mock. You have to understand what you're getting into before you enlist in it. And that is a complete change, a turn. Your life has to count and you have to care more about what I say than what culture says. You have to care more about pressing into me and my presence than you do these empty religious practices. You have to care more about transforming into my image than pervading your own. Jesus asked them to count that cost, and he said, and it's not done by adding to this current religion or spiritual belief system. There's a really important word in evangelicalism, and we all believe that our, our salvation is dependent on it. That word is repent. Let me ask you a question. We all know that repent means to turn, like to literally turn our back on what we've been doing to walk in a new way. Is it possible... Because the next word he used was accepting. That we would be accepting of just how sinful we actually are. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Maybe you have a relationship with him and your salvation is secure. And that's where you find yourself. And that's amazing. That's great. But how many of you today would just say within yourself, no hands raised. There are some things 
empty practices that I've been placing a lot of faith in. There are some things that are more about me and less about him, and I keep running to those things. Hello? I keep running to those things. Maybe it's someone, maybe you're here and you don't uh, live, you don't eat to live, you live to eat. Maybe it's food that's a vice for you. Maybe it's social media that's a vice for you. Maybe it is, uh, like I've said before, you're an addict of affirmation and you need people continually blowing you blowing you up by patting you on the back or blowing sunshine up your skirt. And we're all in that category, by the way. I've watched. Okay? We all can't wait to post something super profound on social media so that everyone goes, Hello? The truth is this. We have to be able to to recognize that this Lenten period that I believe that God looks at his people who practice it religiously and they, they miss the point entirely. We were having a discussion last night. My father-in-law brought up a point. He said, I knew some people who practice Lent religiously and they would only like eat fish on Friday. They wouldn't otherwise touch meat. And they were very strict on the dietary laws. But their life pervaded something completely different. Their heart was far from him. Just like he said here, you hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied well of you. Your lips honor me, but your heart is far from me. Out of the overflow of the heart, the what? Mouth speaks, reveals what's actually in there. And Jesus came for what? Stomach or heart? He came that your heart might change. And so here's the thing. I actually believe that if you are going to take up a challenge from the church to stop complaining and fast complaining for 40 days as you prepare for the cross, as you start walking towards Easter celebration, because here's what you're going to find as you study in life group at Exodus. They'd walk through the Red Sea. I mean, come on, like that enough. Like walk through the Red Sea, saw their enemy swarmed. Within three days, guess what they were doing? Complaining. They were grumbling against their leader within three days. How short are our memories? How short is our, our praise? How, how short-lived is it? So here's the deal. God provides water from a dysentery uh, pond. And then guess what? Within a few days, they're complaining. What do you do? Bring us out here to die? Provision of God miraculously, beautifully, literally food from heaven, complain. How many of you go, I want to see the move of God. I want to see the miracle of God. How many of you complain a lot? And how many of you have seen God move in your life just at least one time, once? Like you saw the miracle of God that you couldn't put your finger on or take credit for it. That was him, one time. How many of you had that happen more than once? How many of you walk every day in gratitude because of that or complaint comes more out of you? Because here's the deal, at the end of this week where they're laying palm fronds and jackets at his feet, which we'll look at next week, by the end of the week, he's going in the grave and they're going, what happened? They did not understand. Why did they do that? Why did they say he's our king? Because they want to reign with him. It was still about them. They missed it. I'm asking the church today in an over-churched environment that is under-gospeled, is it still about you? Or is it about him? Because like my children on a night that was intended to be together and be really important and really familial and you know, emotional and, and connecting, 
When we don't get our way, we have a tendency to fight about it. And how many of us are just really good at fighting for our way? How many of you are good at convincing yourself that you are right and of your way? Here's what I want to say about the list that Jesus just gave us in verses 21 to 23. Here it is. Jesus came for the heart. He wasn't really overly concerned about this stuff except how much it affected other people. He reads a list, but the list is not what needs to change. It's not behavior modification that needs to happen. We don't just complain or stop complaining for the sake of stop complaining. He wants to see the heart changed. Paul wrote a same list in Galatians 5. He said, this is the fruit of the flesh. He said, put this aside, submit to the Spirit, and out of you will come the fruit of the Spirit. He said, I don't want my people who are called by my name, who gather in places like this, worshiping me all the time, to live as if they don't know me. Hello? Constantly fighting amongst the darkness because they've forgotten that they are light. Turning from what we have called truth, but are actually human traditions. Turning from what which we control, to let him be in control. Turning from what... We have built to ourselves our own throne to kneel at his. To where can we go? Your words have life. In John 15, Jesus gave an illustration of his life and him being the lifeblood to his disciples. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You'll bear fruit if you're connected to me of the life that is in me. This was only a reflection of a a vision that was given to Zechariah in chapter 4 of his book. In Zechariah 4, you see this imagery, and I I really like that Jesus made it simpler with the vine and branches. Like, okay, I got that. This image, if you go back and read Zechariah 4, it gets a little, it's just weird. But the point is clear. It's this. It's a picture of a bowl with seven lampstands with a massive frame. And that pillar holds that up, and those lampstands are all aglow. In the middle of the bowl is olive oil. And that olive oil is running through the main of that, 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 that structure that's holding it up. Out of the structure flow two gold pipes. And those pipes are flowing. They're flowing to olive trees. What is the picture? Here it is. That those olive trees supply an endless supply of fuel so those lampstands will never go out. Those lampstands... If they'll just depend on the life source that they have in the, in the golden pipes flowing from those olive trees, that oil will never go out. Thus, the glow will always stay. The glow will never go out. In fact, he said in verse 6, he said, Zerubbabel, which was that pillar. He said, not by might, not by power, but by spirit, says the Lord. Not by might. Not by power, not by your own gifting, not by your own charisma, not by what you think that you can do militarily, not what you can do educationally, not by the, all that you consumed information-wise, not by your academia, not by your religious practices. It's not by any of that stuff. He says, but by my spirit alone declares the Lord. I am an unending supply for you. And at Jesus, he placed his spirit within us so that we might stay aglow always. Let me ask you this. How much of our flesh dims his glow in our lives to a dark world. This is the point of Lent. It's that we would recognize that our life is connected continually. We turn inward and we want that life source to keep us aglow in a dark world. So what is one of the things that we can do? 
we turn to him, we press into him, and we recognize how good and how great he is to us, and we stop complaining about crap not going our way. Hello? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We do not need to acquire, to control, to disseminate information. We have an endless supply. So our last point is this. Our response should be cheering over complaint. How many of you agree with that? Our response should be cheering and praise over complaint. And that, that's coming from someone who has a tendency to complain quite a bit. I'm sorry, I do. But I know that God is bringing me to this place where I, I need to cheer him on. I need to join God in what he's doing by praising him. The people in Jesus' day were man this, this complaining tendency, they, it was manifest in the Pharisees. What they do when they came to him? They complained against his disciples to him. That's what they did. The people of Moses' day in the Exodus, he walks them through the Red Sea. He provides them water to drink from a dysentery well. And what? They complain. Let me ask you, does the fellowship at two rivers see the miracle and the move of God? We watch someone come to Christ, watch someone be baptized, and what is our response? How short-lived is our praise and how quick is our complaint? They complained against God, they complained against his move, his provision, and his miracles. Their impatience demanded more and demanded it now. They didn't want a God. What they wanted was a servant to cater to their every whim. And we will do the same without a conscious listening, as Jesus said, a constant teachability and understanding, accepting and repenting daily. He said, you have to daily take up your cross and come after me. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. So for the next 40 days, here's what I want to do. We're going to stop complaining. And here's the thing. We're not going to just try to stop complaining we're going to focus on praise. I think it's really hard to stop complaining when you're like, oh, I can't complain. But it comes very palatable when we think about all the reasons we have to praise him. All the reasons and all the, the heart of gratitude that he's truly due, that he's worthy of. When we focus our mind on that, we renew our mind to think on how good he is, how great he is, how we've tasted and seen how good he is. We naturally stop complaining. Hello? So the next 40 days, that's what we're going to do. I want us, I'm going to encourage you to tie your fast to something. We're going to fast complaining as a principle. We're going to get to the heart of the matter. But I want you to tie it to something. Maybe that is food for you. Maybe it's social media. Here's why I want you to tie it to that. But go back to the intention of God in this. Here's why. How many of you ever felt the hunger pains when you fasted a meal? You feel the tummy rumble. That's an opportunity created for you to press in and go, not by bread and water alone, but by every word that professed from the mouth of God. That gives you opportunity to press into a time of prayer and in his study to hear what he has for you, to speak and to develop intimacy. How many of you spend way too many hours on social media? Put it aside and create opportunity for him to come and speak rather than finding yourself letting the world and culture speak to you. Here's what I want to know. In that time, would you cast your anxieties upon you because you love him? You're sitting there, how many of you have ever come to time with, with the Lord and all you can think about is all that you have to get done? Or how, how poorly everyone else has mistreated you? He said, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties upon him because he loves you. Put it before him because he loves you. Why? Because he loves us. He asks us to. This is our worship. This is right because we love him. And out of that time, when, he, when you put that anxiety before him and you find yourself coming to that intimate place, how many of you know what like that prayer closet time looks like with the Lord? Where you just you come into a time with him, it's so sweet, you don't even want to leave it. Out of that, 
It's out of that heart that you go into the world aglow because you've tapped into that power source. Here's what I want to ask, and I'm going to end with this. What does the world around us in Donaldson, Hermitage, Nashville, Mount Juliet, and beyond begin to look like when one church, just one, that bears Jesus' name would stop complaining about things for 40 days? You see, this is the point. Corporately, it would be amazing to see what would happen if we would stop complaining. But individually, to do that, you have to start to develop a heart of gratitude. Your heart has to change. We have to turn from our individual tendencies to complain so the, the, the greater good, the people that we're being developed to be, the praise of his people gets louder. It gets muffled. It gets muffled when I'm individually complaining about how things didn't go my way. Hello? And we need to repent of that. We need to be what James told us to, the half-brother Jesus, slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to get angry, but quick to praise. I'm adding that part. Look, I am incredibly grateful for this church. I'm incredibly grateful for the life of this church. I'm incredibly grateful that every time I walked through these doors, I sensed the Spirit of God, I sensed His presence. But I want to ask you, how many of us have begun to take His presence for granted? And it's evident in our complaints. This morning, I'm asking us to change that, intentionally turning back to Him. Father, I ask that as we respond to you right now, you'd forgive us. It may not be all of us, but if, uh, if only me, your kids are complaining. And I ask that you'd forgive us. I ask that we'd repent of that and choose praise over complaint. And I pray that we would turn this entire room into an altar. That we wouldn't have to just be afraid of coming up front. We wouldn't have to turn, be afraid of turning an altar our seed into an altar, God. We wouldn't have to be afraid of going to a neighbor that we have ill will against and, and confess and ask forgiveness. We wouldn't have to be afraid to come to you and allow you to look upon us. Let us see your smile. Let us see your embrace and receive it and stop being lied to, God, by the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy from us. So, Father, I ask that right now, by the move of your spirit, you'd sweep through this crowd and come to us individually. And God, you would make us aware in our minds and hearts the places where we complain against you, where we complain against your move, where we keep your spirit at bay because we don't embrace his presence. And right now, in Jesus' name, I pray you'd find your church willing to do whatever you ask us to. It's in your name I ask it. Amen.